congratulations are normally considered poor form, so it's probably fitting that John didn't congratulate himself during the announcements earlier. I'll take this time to go ahead and announce that John finished up his ordination exams and trials this weekend at Presbytery. He's been approved by the North Texas Presbytery and welcomed. <laughs> Amen. So give thanks with John and Ellen and as a church for God's gift of John to us and God's ministry to us through John. We'll have John's ordination service probably sometime mid to late September, uh, but do find him and applaud him privately. He likes that. This morning, we're at the end of John's gospel. These are the last six verses of John's gospel, and they make sort of an epilogue. I'll address this early on in the sermon, but these last several passages probably feel a little bit anticlimactic. Well, this is John's epilogue. These are his last words as he looks back over the gospel and looks ahead to Jesus' return. And so it's good news for us both in retrospective and in hope. And we will see that clearly uh, as we unpack some of these verses. As we do, this morning I have a couple of questions, both for young Christians, little worshipers, those who are actually young in terms of years, those who are young in their faith. And then the same questions are good for older disciples, those who have worshipped and loved Jesus for years, have believed his gospel and grow to trust it more every day. These are the questions we should ask ourselves as we read through these, past, as we read through these verses, as we think through the sermon. Given all that John has told us, all of the beautiful pictures and images of redemption in Jesus' ministry, what kind of Savior did God give us in Jesus? What kind of Savior is Jesus? And because of those things, what do we expect Him to do for us when He returns? What kind of Savior is Jesus and what do we expect? when he comes back to gather us up as his church. This is the good news of John's gospel, and in John's closing, John chapter 21, verses 20 through 25. Now Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw this one, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. Instead, he said, If it is my will that, that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Join me as we pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we have the privilege of coming together to you again this morning. We come here for your worship, to hear your word preached, carrying everything with us, our pains, our fatigue, and our joys, our needs, and our reasons for praise. 
Would you now send your spirit to invade the preaching of your word and make its meaning clear to us? As you do, convict and challenge and comfort and excite your church. Make our hope in you all the more, vi- all the more vivid, all the more sure. Make us as your people all the more joyful as we look ahead to your return. And we'll see your goodness fully and finally and the kingdom consummated. We ask these things in the great hope of your kingdom as those who have been born again to it, who see glimpses of it already, but not yet a full picture of it. We ask that you would do these things for us in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. What John has given us in the entirety of his gospel is a full picture of what Jesus is, who he was in his earthly ministry, what he did in his first coming, in order to set us up for a glimpse of eternity, in order to give us small snapshots of who Jesus is for us as the Word made flesh, what He does for us as our Redeemer and Savior, and what waits for us in the new creation when we actually behold redemption full and settled and done. And so John writes for us this epilogue, and it has echoes of the crucifixion and resurrection as he has worked his way away from the account of the actual resurrection in his gospel. This passage closes John's entire account, the account of the gospel of Jesus' earthly ministry, and it feels anticlimactic as we come down off the resurrection and two triumphant stories of Jesus confronting doubt and restoring deniers, and it should feel anticlimactic. The real climax of the book is the actual resurrection. John spent roughly a third of his book setting up the events, all of Jesus' teachings and his actions the night before his death, all looking ahead to what would happen in his crucifixion, all that he would draw to himself, all that he would fulfill, all that he would accomplish, all that he promised in the resurrection, even though his disciples didn't have a clear sense of it and were surprised by his resurrection. And so John builds these things up for a third of his account. He condenses the incarnation and three years of ministry into roughly 12 chapters. And then from 13 to 19, he fills out the events of really a handful of hours from the night before he was crucified and his trial and his actual crucifixion. But the real climax is the surprising undoing of all of this. After all that buildup, four or five paragraphs later, Jesus is raised. You have all of that build-up for Jesus to die, and then four or five paragraphs later, and Jesus is out of the tomb, walking around and surprising disciples and confronting doubt and declaring his power over death and good news that there's new life in himself. So all the events that follow from there, I don't want to belittle them in John's gospel, but they are John winding down, and you know that this is the way stories work. You wouldn't end with just an empty tomb and move on. There is the colossal victory of Jesus' resurrection, and then John is winding his way down as he unpacks pieces of it for us. 
And inside the grand story that John has written for us, they sound like echoes of crucifixion and resurrection. So after he's raised, Jesus confronts Thomas and overcomes his doubt so that the faith that Thomas already had would grow deeper and more sure. And John gave us in that passage a couple weeks ago his expressed intent in writing the book that he wants the very same for us. He wants the crucifixion of our skepticism and the raised life of deep and enduring trust through the events that happened to Thomas, but also through the testimony of John's entire narrative. And then last week we saw Jesus' interaction with Peter. And we get the humiliating crucifixion of Peter's self-assured and self-reliant pride. And then they turn towards Jesus resurrecting new versions of calls to discipleship and a life of ministry. As Jesus says to Peter, follow me. Do you love me? Well, then follow me. Feed my sheep, but follow me. And hear echoes of that same resurrected call in this passage. We picture Jesus and Peter way off in the distance, privately having this conversation, but Jesus confronted Peter after a breakfast in the presence of seven disciples. And in the course of the conversation, Jesus has told Peter about the martyrdom that waits for Peter, how he'll die and how he'll glorify God in his death. And while the statements might have been enigmatic to us, it's clear from this passage that Peter understood. He knew that Jesus was talking about his death because he saw John following them. And he turned to Jesus, probably like a lot of us would. So I have to die. What about him? Does he die? What about all these other guys? Do they die? Jesus is overcoming all of Peter's self-assured, self-reliant, self-proclaimed pride in his discipleship, and he does it within earshot of the other disciples, not to embarrass Peter, but enough that Peter gets lost in comparing himself to other disciples, and he turns to Jesus and asks, what about these other disciples? What do you have in store for them? It's not meant to be a punt, but it is distracting for Peter to be preoccupied with what Jesus has in discipleship for someone else instead of for him. Jesus' answer is, well, don't worry about him. You follow me. We get it repeated in our passage this morning. And so these are the closing verses of John's gospel. And like I said before, they work like an epilogue. These are kind of his closing afterthoughts and remarks, and they include his acknowledgments for authorship and even notes about publication. John implies that he has written without naming himself, referring to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Not an arrogant title, by the way. He doesn't say, and he is not saying, this was written by Jesus' favorite, by the best disciple. Very aware of the tenderness and grace with which Jesus has loved him, he identifies himself the way we should all identify ourselves. Identity grounded in the grace and love of Jesus. This is written by the disciple whom Jesus loved so well. 
we might say. But then he has the odd pronoun in verse 24. This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that this testimony is true. While this may be recounted and recorded for us by the Spirit and through a single apostle, these things are being published for the church, not with a royal we, but either an apostolic we, either the host of apostles who are affirming this message, or more likely, the church who has known and drunk deeply from this gospel through John's ministry. The ones who take this account and make it public by copying and distributing it. In this epilogue, we get a small glimpse of the fact that John has written not just for posterity, not just because these things might be interesting to those who want to Google them and read about them on Wikipedia. These have been written to the church. And they've been published by the church for the church. Other Christians discipled by these words who have hope rooted in these words have decided to make these things public. In God's providence, he has used his church to confirm his church's faith in this testimony. And that's fitting because what John has written all through the gospel is an account of Jesus meeting all of our individual and corporate needs, all of our individual and corporate salvation, to be gathered together in faith and worship and discipleship and rest and rejoicing and hope. Both the killing of guilt and the killing of self-righteousness that would point fingers at the guilty. All through the book, he has written varied individual stories, the needs addressed for whole communities, a wide variety of needs addressed by one Savior with a very broad and deep gospel that meets and invades and transforms all. And John alludes to these things and calls them to mind when he has that final statement, were every one of these things to be written, every one of the things that Jesus did, then creation itself couldn't contain the books that would have to be written. As he says those in closing remarks, it works the way epilogues do in touching and sentimental movies like Brian's song. At the end of Brian's song, after you've reached the climax of friends saying goodbye to each other and the tragedy of death, you have the narration of who Brian Piccolo was and you get the slow motion scene of him running, right? And you get the recounting of who he was in life. And so, so John comes off of these things, comes out of these accounts, and reminds us, I've already told you a lot of what Jesus has done, but if he did, if we told you everything that he did, it would take more than the time we have, more than the space we have in this life in creation to contain it. And in doing so, he calls to mind that slow motion, 
highlight reel of Jesus' ministry and a curiosity about, well, what else did Jesus do? What kind of Savior is better than the one we have here? What ministry could be fuller than what we have in John's Gospel? And so John calls to mind for us what he's already told us and what will be unpacked for us in eternity. He hints at the fact that the goodness of Jesus is too big. He's too glorious as a Savior and His grace is too deep to understand and exhaust and really fathom in this life. We couldn't record enough words to capture it. And this will become the theme of our praise. This will become our contemplation in eternity as we stand face to face with a Savior has brought eternity and new creation to us. And John ends in a very odd way by hinting ever so briefly at Jesus' return and then moving on. What John is doing for us is building out a discipleship that's based on hope. A discipleship and a faith that are not only historical, but look toward the future with real expectant hope. Knowing that all that Jesus did in his earthly ministry is not all that Jesus is as our Savior, that he will do more for us. So step back with me for just a moment and consider the things that he that John has given us in this account of Jesus' earthly ministry, all of the grace and redemption that's been pictured for us, and then we'll jump back in and see how those things unfold in eternity for us. I told you he gave us varied stories of individuals and communities, a wide variety of needs, some opposite each other, but all the way through the story, he's given us one Savior, who perfectly meets and overcomes all of these needs and transforms those he calls to himself. We get the picture of Nicodemus, the prominent and upright, a man too religious and too moral and too important to submit to discipleship if Jesus had not grabbed hold of his heart and granted him faith and shown him a glimpse of his glory and the promise of his redemption. We get a woman at a well, isolated and scandalous, who has been passed around and who has passed herself around relationally, probably sexually, who's whispered about as she walks through town and lives a life of loneliness and a life without hope. And Jesus meets her and offers her permanent hope real hope in the spirit that he will give and worship that will be made new, not in the abstract, but for worshipers who are made personally new again. We see the man at the pool of Bethesda who wants to be healed, but maybe doesn't. Who sits and waits for healing, but has many excuses as to why he's not healed. And Jesus invades his story by asking him simply, do you want to be healed? 
And then he heals him. We have stories like we just encountered in the last couple of weeks where Jesus deals with individual disciples in the context of the disciples' community. He confronts Thomas, not in private, but in the room with all the other disciples. And he confronts and overcomes his doubt. And Thomas gives praise and worship magnificently in the declaration, my Lord and my God, but he doesn't do it privately. It's not in his prayer closet. It's in front of all the other disciples. It's the cause for worship for Jesus' church in that small, localized version. You have Jesus confronting Peter and overcoming not just his self-confidence and pride, but overcoming his failure. Again, meeting the individual with his needs, but also in front of disciples who can join in celebration and worship and praise. And you get to see the interplay through John's gospel as Jesus confronts and comforts certain individuals, but also does things for whole groups. If you want to think of it this way, he often confronts what we would consider wayward churches, to be a little bit anachronistic about it. Like the shameful woman caught in adultery in John 8. He speaks words of mercy and forgiveness and restoration to her. And he has very sarcastic words of biting conviction. So sharp he only has to imply them to the crowd who works a little bit like Westboro Baptist. The crowd who brings her out with signs that say things like, God hates adulteresses. comforts and confronts all in one scene. We have an entire community of disciples bent on Christian acquisition in John 6 because they love Jesus for the bread he can provide, the free food. Give me the stuff. Like Janis Joplin, who wanted the Mercedes Benz. And Jesus both confronts their wrong desires and offers them more as he preaches to them that he is the true manna of heaven, the true bread of heaven that comes down. He confronts the churches of legalism like the Sabbath police in John 9 when he heals the man born blind. In almost every interaction, it seems, in the middle of the gospel, Jesus confronts churches who need to understand the relationship of Jesus' peace and the discipling call to go and sin no more. He offers them forgiveness that they have not earned, that they cannot achieve by their efforts, but he doesn't call them to a passive relationship with himself. He calls them to active ministry. Just like he prays for us in John 17, and he preaches to his disciples in John 13. And what John beautifully and simply ties up for us at the end of this book in this handful of verses by referencing Jesus' second coming and alluding to all that he's done and promising us that there's more that he did do and more that he will do. And all of that, John paints for us a picture of the gospel that is both past and future. We use the shorthand already and not yet. The fullness of God's goodness has come to us 
And we have some pieces of it already, some glimpses of the parts already. But we wait for the not yet. Our hope is built that there's more coming, a full redemption that undoes the curse fully and restores us and all of creation and our relationship to our Creator perfectly. Because John has written this gospel, like I said, not just to be posted somewhere on a blog, not to be buried on page 6 of the New York Times. He has written this to the church. And the church has now, at the end of these verses, committed to hand it off to the other church, the other churches, rather, around them. And in God's providence through history, this account of Jesus' goodness has been handed down from church to church to church Because when it comes down to it, we are not a bunch of separate little churches. We are one church, one body of Christ, with one Savior and one gospel, one Lord and one baptism, one Father and one worship, one adoption, one forgiveness, waiting for one resurrection, pressing on and changed and purified by one hope. And so John has written to us a gospel that is written to the already and not yet community of the church. And the gospel narrative that he's given us is not a list of instructions. It's not a description of the daily life of the church. It is the story that is the foundation of those things. And so by way of preview, where we're headed next, as we finish John's gospel, we will run into 1 John. We'll run into John's largest letter, probably his last letter, and probably written after this gospel. But John's explanation of what life as the church should look like. This was John Berger's idea. I can't take credit for it, but it's a good one that we would use the gospel story of who Jesus is, what he did for us in his first ministry, and what he promises in his final consummative ministry to us in return, we would take that and let it throw us into John's directions for the church, his concise preaching of the gospel and all of its implications for how we live together and with those around us. And we'll see, I'm not going to, Give, a, give away too many things here. What we'll see in 1 John is that discipleship and incarnation and the mortification of sin and growing sanctification and hope, all of these things are tied together in Christian love. And John will write a letter for us that ties all of these things together beautifully, not as separate pieces, but as components of this one new resurrected life that Jesus, our resurrected Savior, has given us. One of my favorite commentators on John's Gospel, at the end of his commentary, summarizes the entire Gospel of John this way. He says it has a twofold moral, if you were looking for a moral to the Gospel. He says, if you want to know God, then look to Jesus. He cites verses especially from the first chapter where John preaches to us that Jesus has come to explain the invisible God to us. He says, if you want to know God, look to Jesus. And if you want to know what Jesus is like, 
you should be able to look to the church. It's not because we are a perfect reflection of it. It's not because we encapsulate all that Jesus is. If all the books that would cover all of creation could not contain who he is, our paltry little lives can't either. But I think what he's after is our growing resemblance in sanctification. That we are a preview and a small picture of who Jesus is in fullness. That as we are sanctified, we are being made to resemble him more and more. And it's not just in looking at us in ourselves that reveals Jesus. It's actually seeing in us the character that's revealed in Jesus' saving action when someone looks to the church. What John is giving to us is a brief glimpse small pictures of who Jesus is and the goodness of his gospel that will be unpacked fully in his return. And so he gives us these verses that whet our appetites for him to return. As we think about what it's like to wait for him to come again, as we mull over and remember and meditate on everything that he has done, And if you'll permit me one much lower brow example, I'll use a different movie. In this way, the epilogue to John's gospel works a little bit like the end of Back to the Future. The story is done. The conflict is resolved. Everything is right in the world inside that movie. But it ends with the promise that more is coming to the story. There's more conflict to be resolved yet. And what's begun must be finished. That happens in a cheesy way in Back to the Future too. Don't get me wrong. But you've seen and read many stories like this. Where the story ends with the promise that more is coming. That the story actually fills out. That as much as the story feels finished, it's actually just been an introduction. So John whets our appetites. Not to see temporary alleviating of the curse in Jesus' earthly ministry in those first three years. Not only to see the promise that the curse will be put away and that he has conquered death, but that one day... More is coming when faith is turned to sight, when hope becomes experience and the new creation is finally here in fullness. All that Jesus has shown himself to be, the things that John has admittedly selected for us in this sampling, these have begun to be ours. And what John is implying for us here is that these are the graces that chase us down in this lifetime but only in part, only in preview. They catch us in eternity. We're tackled by God's grace and overcome by it and overwhelmed by it when the kingdom comes in fullness. That the Jesus who turned water into wine is our purification now ongoing, but in the end is our unending celebration. 
That the Savior who is able to feed 5,000 is our daily sustenance. He is the provision sent by the Father, but His lasting effects are permanent feasting. If we shift our focus from the woman at the well to Jesus at the man, as the man at the well, we see promises of living water of the Spirit that He will send, and the Spirit quenches our thirst now, day by day, but we continue to thirst. In eternity, He is our everlasting refreshment. Jesus, the light of the world and the truth that sets men free, is the one who is drawing us out of our hiding now. The one in whom we start to find freedom now in our sanctification as he puts sin to death and brings to life new loves. But in eternity, there will be nothing left to hide. We will live out in the open. Again, metaphorically speaking, like our first parents, naked and unashamed, uncovered, unprotected, with the full liberation of unending freedom. The Jesus that John has written about, who wept at Lazarus' tomb and then raised Lazarus, promised that he is the resurrection and the life. Right now, he is our hope in grief. In the end, he puts away our grief permanently. We don't hope for it anymore in the kingdom. We have it. At that point, he becomes our unassailable resurrection an eternal life that's not wished for and hoped for and longed for and expected. It just is. Christ, who declared himself the true vine in whom we grow and bear fruit now, is the vine in whom we continue to live in all of eternity and bear an infinite crop of beauty and holiness with nothing left to prune. Just unending fruitfulness in the new heavens and new earth. For our comfort and rejoicing, but not just for our delight, for Christ's delight as the vine, the Father's delight as the vine dresser, the Spirit's delight who's bearing fruit in us, we participate in their divine joy in all of eternity. And we get small pictures of that now. But what John is preaching to us here is that one day we'll have them in fullness in ways that would overwhelm us if we could see a glimpse of them now. What John has given to us in these 21 chapters is the vivid picture of Jesus, the Son of God, made man with us and for us, marching through creation, reclaiming what's rightfully His, reclaiming us as those who are rightfully His, and remaking us to be fit for the new creation. And this gospel narrative of incarnation preaches to us that these promises couldn't come in the abstract. The incarnation came when there was no room left for prophetic messages. Bulletins posted that God is coming. 
notes sent that God really loves the world. These are promises not made in the abstract, John is saying in the Incarnation. These are promises made in person. And so Jesus, the Son of God, became man to restore us to our full humanity. And all through the Gospel, we've gotten small pictures of it. In the experience of our new life in Him, we get glimpses and confirmations that these things are real as He continually raises us up in the power of His resurrection to bear more and more the image of God. John holds out hope for us that the increasing measure of these things gives us hope. But the hope is not that the increasing will go on in perpetuity. The hope is that at one point in the future, Christ will actually come back and make these things full, set these things right, undo the curse, but also restore all of creation. John has preached to us through the rest of the gospel and what he reminds us of here is that this is our Savior. A Savior too good to fit into one description. A Savior too good and too glorious with redemption too full to fit in even this number of miraculous signs and sermons and teachings and tenderness. These are the graces that chase us down in this lifetime. These are the graces that will catch us in eternity when the kingdom has come in fullness. It's to this hope that we press on. It's to this hope that we look in joy and confidence. And both in the face of the curse... And even in the face of joys and celebration, in both situations, we say very confidently and very sincerely, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because in you, our pains are put to death, and in you, our joys are actually consummated and made full in ways we can't imagine now. This is the grace of the Savior that will overcome us as He brings His kingdom as He brings all of these kingdom realities to life in us along the way, but we see them one day fully. And so we pray together at the end of every service, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. And join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the hope to which you have saved us, the promises that you have made to us, not only by declaration, but in your life, in your ministry, as you walked through and reclaimed creation for yourself and reclaimed a people for yourself. We thank you that in your cross it was death and the curse that died. And we look forward in hope to the day when you will put it away finally. We thank you for the resurrected life that you give us now as you have raised once dead hearts to believe and trust in yourself, your sovereign goodness in growing our faith and changing us 
heart and mind, body and soul. And so when we are pressed by the pains of this life, and even in the face of our greatest joys and celebrations, we know that the pains won't last and the joys pale in comparison to what you have prepared for us in eternity. So every day in the face of everything, every circumstance in which we find ourselves, we pray earnestly, come quickly. Come quickly and claim us for yourself. Restore us finally and fully. Your goodness is too full for us to comprehend. Your glory is too much for us to behold. And yet you have given us the pleasure and the privilege of seeing glimpses of it through John's gospel. We ask that you would confirm our faith. You would revive and refresh our hearts. Let us find comfort in you. Do these things for us by the work of your Spirit and for the glory of your Father. Amen.